you comes from our listeners and from Jazz in June, the Midcoast's first annual jazz festival held June 14th through 16th in Camden. Headline concert Saturday night, June 15th, featuring the Kenny Barron Trio, Greg Abate Quartet, and the Peter Dembski Group. Guitarist Bill Barnes performing at the Blue Cafe and the Friday night dance party at the Snow Bowl. Tickets and passes at camdenoperahouse.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Sprinkle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. In the spirit of spring and the reawakening of nature all around us, our show today is in celebration of the return of the alewives. Alewives are fish that spend part of their life cycle at sea, and in the spring, they return to main rivers to spawn. Unfortunately, dams and other obstructions can block alewives from completing their annual migration. But residents in coastal communities understand how important alewives are to our coastal ecosystems and also to the economy. And dozens of volunteer groups up and down the coast have been working hard to restore alewives. So our guests in the studio today are here to share the story of one such restoration project, not very far from the WERU studio on the Bagaduce River. So I'm excited to introduce our guests today in the studio with us. Uh, we have three guests who've been involved in all kinds of work on the Bagaduce, and this will be a, a pretty fun show hearing from them, all the work they've been doing with many other partners in the region to restore alewives. And specifically, I have Bailey Bowden, who's from the town of Penobscot. He's a fisheries activist and co-founder of the Bagaduce River Alewife Committee, which is a group of citizens from three river towns working to restore fish passage within their watershed. Hi, Bailey. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, we also have Mike Talhauser, fisheries biology biologist at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington. And he is facilitating and supporting the Bagaduce River Alewife Committee as part of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries efforts to support co-managed fisheries at the right scale. Hi, Mike. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. And then our third guest today is Siona Ulbrich who is a senior project manager at the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. And she works with Mike and Bailey and lots of other folks. And she's served as a point person in pulling together the funding and collaboration and engineering and construction of the set of fishway projects that together will restore passage through the Bagaduce River watershed. Hi, Siona. Great to have you. Hi, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thanks. Great. So through the course of the show, we'll get a chance to hear um, all the details about what these folks have been doing and what their various roles have been in the restoration of the Bagaduce. 
Um, but before we dive into the work they've been doing, um, it'd be great to kind of get a lay of the land of the Bagaduce River watershed area that is the focus of our show today. Um, so, Siona, can you kind of paint a picture for listeners who may not quite have the map in their head about what's the, what's the region we're talking about? Yeah, I can, and then Mike and Bailey can add more. Um, the Bagaduce River is one of the most productive estuaries in Maine. In spite of being a pretty small river, it's only 12 miles long, and it is surrounded by five towns, uh, Blue Hill, Penobscot, Castine, Brooksville, and Sedgwick, to give us all a sense of where we're talking about. Um, it has five major ponds, and ponds and streams are part of the important habitat area for alewife restoration. Um, it also has over a 1,000 acres of submerged land intertidal area that's so important for shellfish and water, water birds, waterfowl. So very important place from an ecological standpoint. And Bailey, maybe you want to talk a little more about human. Well, uh, we have five ponds that once held alewives in the Bagaduce River, and unfortunately we lost two of the runs. And that is kind of one of our big goals is to restore those two runs as well as improve and enhance the existing runs that we still have. And why have we lost the runs? Uh, Mainly through beaver dams blocking fish passage. And what's the, uh, the historical use of the rivers? So I would add to the beaver dams that there's a real heritage of mills that were part of the economy of this area. Um, These towns really are closely tied to the natural resources in the area. Um, And so there were, there was a lot of logging, um, sawmills, lumber mills, and uh, some textile mills in the area. And these were water powered back before we used the power sources we have today. So a lot of them meant damming up rivers to use the power of that water flow and uh, run the mills. And those mills unintentionally um, tended to impact or cut off the alewife passage. Yeah, and I'd just like to to add, I think the other really important thing about the, the Bagaduce um, drainage is the communities that are there and that they're, they're communities that are really tied to fishing and the marine environment. And so these alewives are really a... Uh, a great description of of that connection between um, communities and the the fishing that goes on in these communities and the marine uh, fisheries that are out there, and that's one of the things that really sets these communities apart in their understanding of that connection and wanting to bring that back to the rest of the drainage. So it sounds like there's uh, a history of going way back of settlement that um, and and sort of development of the drainage that contributed to the blockage of the rivers and stream for fish to come back. It sounds like there's also some beaver activity um, that causes blockage, presumably because they're building dams, beaver dams. Correct. Uh, and so alewives can't get up through beaver dams. Um, so what's the impact on on the alewives sort of not being able to get through? Well, I guess the, the ecological impact is that um, if alewives can't get back to these ponds, alewives are a, a river herring species that spend their the most of their life out in the open ocean and come back to these ponds and streams to to spawn each year. And 
when they that block that blockage stops fish for enough years, they just stop coming back. And so it just takes four or five years to be able to to completely stop a run. And the human impact is these fisheries that they've um, co-managed with the state for for hundreds of years. Um, those fish aren't being being able to be utilized by the communities. And then alongside that, all the osprey and the foxes and the other animals that, that use these fish and the animals even in the open ocean, um, ground fish and pretty much everything else, everything in the world eats alewives that sees one. And so um, there's big impacts when they, they don't get back to these streams. And maybe I would add that alewives are interesting because they, they remember where to go. So they, they like to, they want to go back to the pond they came from. And so they don't just go to any pond to spawn. What Mike is speaking to is that they want to go back to a specific pond. Can one of you talk a little bit about the, about the alewives themselves, sort of introduce the animal that we're talking about in terms of what, how their life cycle works? Um, yeah, I'll, I mentioned a little bit before, but yeah, so right now, right today in Maine, the alewives are coming back to hundreds of different, different systems. Um, hopefully, if all these efforts um, keep moving forward, it'll be thousands. And they're coming back right now from the from the marine environment. They travel up the the streams that end up in our ponds, and that's where they spend anywhere from a week to a month or so. And the adults that are anywhere from four to ten years old spawn in in groups in the ponds. And then pretty much after they spawn, they kind of boogie out of there and head back into the into the ocean. And the juveniles that um, are made from that spawning event will spend anywhere from a month to several months in the ponds, and they'll leave somewhere in the fall. Um, and then they'll spend um, a year or so rearing in the estuarine environment and then make that trip down the coast, and they'll kind of move around the, the ocean with Atlantic herring and other river herring species and um, are out there feeding all kinds of fish and being um, caught in a few different fisheries, but they they do that and they keep coming back every year. Some alewife can spawn four or five, even six times during their lifetime. Unlike some salmon species, they don't just die after they spawn. Some do, and they leave behind nutrients in the in our you know freshwater environments. But um, they're able to to repeat spawn, and that's a really important part of their life cycle. And uh, you mentioned that they're closely related to other herring species. Um, do they do they school like I'm imagining a school of herring? Do you guys know if they sort of when they move through, do they sort of stay in large groups? Yeah, they're definitely a schooling fish. Yeah, um, what do they look like? Oh, they're anywhere from ten inches to twelve inches long. They're uh, pretty well compressed. They're a, a thin fish. They're built for speed, so their scales come off easily. They're kind of huh bullet-shaped, so they can get through fast-running water, and they're really powerful swimmers, but they don't jump very well. So that's where obstructions get in the way, like a, a vertical hazard, like a beaver dam. They're just, they just they can't leap over it. They need to swim freely through the water. And uh, Right, and so their bodies have adapted to be able to move up rivers and streams. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Bailey, I think... I heard you say right before we came on the air that you are a seventh generation resident of Penobscot. Of Penobscot Am I yes. getting that right? 
Um, so you and your family have really deep roots in this area and in the Bagaduce. Um, can you talk a little bit about you or your family's connection to the place and sort of what brought you to uh, feeling motivated to spend so much of your time helping bring the alewives back? Um, it all started when the Department of Marine Resources told me I couldn't go fishing anymore, recreationally. And, uh, you know, that's a, a big part of uh, Down East Maine's heritage. It's a heritage fishery. You, you talk to most Mainers, they've, they've done it. They've been in the brook in the spring. And I think part of what regulators didn't see is the, the human connection, the social connection between the fish and the people and what that does for a community. I think they were just looking more at the numbers. We don't have enough fish. And that's part of the reason why there were some extirpation events on the, the Bagaduce in Brooksville was because the lack of interaction between people and the fish. When you can't fish anymore, why go to the brook? And then these beaver dams get built and no one knows because no one's at the brook anymore. So people need to be at the brook. It's a Elwives need people as much as we need them. And as a as a recreational fisherman, when you weren't able to fish anymore, that sort of cuts the connection to, to being on the brook. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think that brings up an important point is that alewife are one of two species in Maine, along with soft-shell clams, that are co-managed between communities and the state. And so what Bailey's talking about, that connection between the communities, you know, we, when we talk about fisheries and management, we often uh, hear the word scale. And so looking at what's the right scale to manage, you know, an individual fishery at. And a lot of fisheries interact with each other, and those scales can make things kind of messy. But with alewives, it's a real, there's a real clear connection of, a, you know, like with what Siona said about a, an alewife run and coming back to that same community every year. You know, it's clear that that scale of, of local management is really important to, to alewife um, remaining in these systems and that connection. Bailey said, we've really got to get these communities connected and that, those, that connection involved in the, in the state management that's going on. And we're starting to, the, the state's really starting to recognize some of those, those connections and starting to make decisions based on that. And I think things are moving forward with that. And that's why we've been as successful as, as we have here and getting people like Bailey that are so connected um, in on this work. Or leading this work, really. Um, and Siona, t- describe a little bit the work that's been happening. What have you guys been doing? Who's involved? And what's been the focus of restoring alewives to the Bagaduce area? Yeah. Um, a lot of people are involved, which is really the fun part. Um, we, it sort of feels like there's a, there are a lot of different roles, a lot of different partners, and I do want to start out by giving a shout-out to the Nature Conservancy and to NOAA um, because they have been key funders and helpers to these projects since the get-go uh, because of their work on alewife restoration statewide. Um, we have been working to do physical access restoration for the fish, so... I mentioned that there are five major ponds in the Bagaduce watershed, and those five um, had blockages to access, um, either complete or partial. And so we're the, where I'm most involved is on that land aspect of figuring out how to undo or work around those blockages to fish access to the key ponds. 
So just to, uh, just to make sure I'm understanding, when you say access, do you mean the ability of the fish to access the pond? Yeah, that's right. The ability of the fish to swim into and then later out of the pond through a stream. Um, so we have done two restoration projects already at White's Pond and at Pierce's Pond in Penobscot. And there are three more that we're hoping to do in the next few years at uh, Walker Pond, Parker Pond, and Frost Pond. Um, we have a number of partners involved in that. These are very complicated, expensive projects involving engineering and construct construction, uh, as well as we need a lot of community support and landowners who understand and support what we're doing. Um, and then part of access restoration is making sure that there are alewives who do come back. And so this has also involved the Department of Marine Resources helping us by stocking some of the ponds that are blocked currently and creating a population that remember to come back to that pond and want to come back, create that run ahead of time so that by the time we actually physically restore the access, the fish are ready to come back. Uh, and have a network. We have an incredible network of volunteers out there in our communities that Mike really oversees um, who have helped us with counting of the fish, help us with figuring out the different logistics of the runs and a lot of the aspects of actually helping the fish get up and down. Yeah, the, um, I think that aspect of the, the volunteerism and the stewardship that's, that we really have in the Bagadoos, again, is one of the reasons why this is, the momentum is there right now. Um, I kind of back of the napkin tallied up the number of hours that spent either um, counting fish, um, passing fish. Bailey, at one point before the, the work was done at White's and Pierce's, was scooping fish over every fish that went to the pond. He was scooping them over with a dip net um, to attending alewife meetings that we probably have about six or seven of each year to notching beaver dams to mitigate that those kind of issues that Bailey mentioned before. What does notching mean? So um, if with a permit from the Department of Marine Resources and Inland Fish and Wildlife, um, one can go out and if when fish are coming back or fish are trying to leave, you can go in there and take out about a one foot by two foot section of, of a beaver dam and the fish will scoot right past that. And these, these communities are putting in somewhere around five to 700 hours of community service and, and work, hard work to, to do this. Um, Siona mentioned that one of our future projects is at um, Walker Pond, where if you go right now, you'll see thousands and thousands of fish coming back right now. But that project specifically isn't to create passage, and we don't need to stock there, but it'll kind of reduce that huge workload that towns have to do to keep doing. And it's not something that they, right now, that they can put in a few years and it gets fixed. If um, if some of these issues with the way the fishway aren't you know, resolved right now, it's an every year thing where it's six, seven hundred hours of work to, to get these fish back. And, you know, you can only ask a community to do something like that for so long. And so um, that support that we're getting and just boots on the ground um, effort is really important right now. I'd like to add some of the scientific work that's being done. And a lot of that has to do with Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Um, but I'll start with what we're required to do. We need to take a scale sample from the fish. And this is required by uh, the DMR. Department of Marine Resources. Yes. So when you look at a, a fish's scale, an LY scale, it's much like a, a tree, and you can count the rings to see how old it is. And when they enter fresh water, the ring has a little 
tweaked mark in it so they can tell every time the fish has been in fresh water. And that's an assumption that it spawned when it came into that fresh water. So DMR is able to tell how old the fish is and how many times it has spawned. And we collect the male or female data and the length and put that in a nice little envelope and take 100 samples, 25 per week during the run. So we get, at the beginning of the run, it's supposed to be older fish, and at the end of the run, the younger fish run. So their age distribution gets younger as the run goes on. So we try to document that. Um, work we've done with, with Mike and Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, we did zooplankton toes for three out of the five ponds that we have fish in, and we're hoping to get the other two pre-stocking and during the stocking event to see how the zooplankton community reacts to fish being introduced. Uh, Mike has helped with a beach seine survey that was started by the Downey Salmon Federation that we do in the estuary, and we have this big 150-foot-long net that we drag around and see how many juvenile L-wives we catch. Um, we're also doing a purse seining on ponds to do the same thing, to see how many juveniles we're catching in the pond, to see if we can get some sort of uh, growth rate data or understand the population dynamics. We've taken fin samples and sent those away to be genetically analyzed for all three runs that we have in the Bagadoos to see if there's any difference there. Can't think of anything else. So we've done a lot of science, and Mike, maybe you have more. Yeah, no, and I think that's another thing that really sets the Bagadoos apart is they're doing, honestly, groundbreaking research on, on alewives. What he was talking about with the, the juvenile pursing is we take this little you know, it's not little, it's still 100 feet long, but as far as the pursane go, it's pretty small. So we, we go out. And, and a, a pursane is a type of a fishing net. Yeah, it's a fishing net that you basically make a circle out of and it hangs straight down and then you purse or cinch the bottom up and you get kind of a grab sample of what's in there. And so we've got to do this at night. This is for catching juvenile fish. And because that's when the juveniles are, that are zooplankton eaters, just like they are when they're out in the ocean, are swimming around in the water column. And so you get these little grab samples, and we can compare that to the number of adults that came back that year and get a better idea of what the productivity of the pond is. Um, and another just really quickly, um, neat, really neat thing that's happened because of a big question that this group is asking, um, the Walker Pond run are smaller than most runs in the state, so the fish are physically smaller. And, in fact, someone um, wrote a paper at the Department of Marine Resources um, back in the 80s um, that categorized these as you know smaller fish and called them pygmy alewives and said they they thought it was because the fish spent an extra year in the in the ponds before they left as juveniles and so this was and and basically the state closed that run to any kind of fishery because they thought it was this you know you know special fish and there was some sort of reason to to protect it and that connection Bailey mentioned of, you know, being able to touch a fish, to harvest it, to, you know, really understand that connection was so important. They said, let's answer these questions and figure out what the deal is. So, you know, Bailey's Town with, with, you know, my organization's help is working with the University of California, Santa Cruz and University of Massachusetts to, to use these methods to answer these questions. And we're getting answers that are saying yeah they're not spending that much time in the in that water and that environment and they're they're not a different species based on the genetic work we've done and so they're asking questions that are you know solving problems and and bringing this this fishery back on the table so wow that's that's super interesting um 
Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And um, you were just hearing right there, that was Mike Talhauser, who's with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Before that, you heard from Bailey Bowden, who is the founder of the Bagaduce River Alewife Committee and a resident of the town of Penobscot. And uh, we also have Siona Ulbrich in the studio with us, who is with the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Um, and we're talking about alewife restoration on the Bagaduce River. Um, so of the three guests in the studio, I believe that only one is um, a marine biologist or a fish scientist. That's Mike. Um, but Bailey, you were talking about what sounds to me like some pretty hardcore science. Um, and so, and you guys have been talking about a number of volunteers being involved. Um, and so it's really interesting to me that everyday folks are involved in what sounds like some complex and important science on the coast. How do you guys train your volunteers? And um, and so that's one question. Um, and we'll start there. And then I have a question about DMR's role. Well, I, yeah, I guess I think that's that's some of my what my role is. But um, so there are things, you know, training volunteers with science, like Bailey talked about the scale sampling that we've got to do for a town to be able to say they have a sustainably harvestable run in the state and the federal government's eyes. Um, and so it might be just as something as simple as as you know, making sure that you're sampling randomly and throughout the run so that, you know, someone might be given the task of, oh, get 100 samples. And so you just go out and grab 100 fish and call it good. But like Bailey said, the the run changes as it goes. And so spreading that out. So it's things like that, making sure simple things like you're pulling the scales from the right spot because a fish starts growing at scales from one specific spot. And so to get it from that preferred area is the the way to do it but a lot of this is is you know so some of it's giving information to people that might not be dealing with science every day but a lot of it is getting the knowledge that these people that live in these towns and interact with these fish you know getting that translated back the other way into management and science and that's really what co-management is it's it's connecting things in all the different directions from the the stakeholders and the fishermen and the community members to the science and management just as much as it is explaining science to a to a person who doesn't deal with it every day but knows the fisheries probably better than anyone in Augusta or um, Washington DC. That's a that's a, a really cool feedback loop. So citizens and residents have the opportunity to learn about sort of the the science and ecology aspect by volunteering with you guys on fish counts, but also recognizing that people who live in the estuary see things every day and have some knowledge that scientists may not see. So the feedback loop between those two information sources, that's pretty cool. Um, I, uh, so my question about DMR is I, I, you, you sort of started touching on it, Mike. Um, so Bailey, you mentioned that uh, you're, you're required to do certain activities in terms of monitoring on the river. Um, what's the what's sort of the goal of that requirement? It's to reopen the runs to be able to have a harvest on them. Exactly. Um, we lost our right to harvest alewife commercially because someone forgot to send in the paperwork. So now we have to submit ten years worth of data that all goes to prove we have a sustainable run, which, you know, 10 years is quite a commitment for a bunch of volunteers yeah. to do this. And right now in Penobscot, we're on year nine. So we're almost at the end of the tunnel. But the, uh, this gets all gets back to co-management 
and a lot of the reasons why we're doing the science is DMR lacks the capacity either with money or manpower to do this stuff. And we've been fortunate that Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries is willing to step up and spend some of their budget on looking at these questions that we have and are really supporting our efforts to do the right thing through conservation to have a, a sustainable run. Well, and I just add, um, just like Bailey said, that 10-year um, commitment that a town's got to go through right now is super burdensome to get you know a town to put in that many hours even for one year is tough to do but for 10 is almost undoable and that's something that i think we see as the the long game of this work is to to use this you know embeddedness kind of in the community and working with these towns to say what's what are their real values and how can we make this happen in different places and i'd say to the department of marine resources credit um, they've been working with us to try to find new ways to incentivize um, this stewardship that they realize is needed because of that, you know, lack of capacity. They don't have someone to to travel the whole, you know, 3,000 miles of our coast or whatever it is to to go to each of these runs and do all the counting. And so they need that that work to happen at the local level. And so right now we're working with them to try to put something together because ALYs in the end are federally managed. And so... They're, you know, dictated by Alaska State's or Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Council rules to be able to put together a management plan that has to get approved by them. And so we're working with the state to try to look at that 10 years and try to find a way that we can maybe lower some harvest levels and see some harvest in connection before that, um, that you know, long, arduous time period. And so I'd say things are moving forward to, to try to make this, this work, this harvest that's possible out there happen in, in fewer years. Because like Bailey said, I mean, they're on year nine, and mm-hmm. even someone as committed with him, as him and, and his community members are getting at the, to the end of their ropes on it. And so, so, you're, uh, so you're involved in a, a number of restoration projects to enable the alewives to come back. You're monitoring the alewives, <clears throat> counting them, and doing science assessments on them to show that the numbers are coming back and that the fish are healthy. And then ultimately, if the, the management agencies recognize that the run is, is good, it has returned, then they might choose to reopen it to recreational or commercial harvest. Am I getting the sequence right? Yep. And that really varies, in, you know, by town. Some towns would probably rather have a, you know, instead of a commercial fishery, they'd probably rather have a uh, or maybe could would rather have a recreational fishery and to see more ospreys, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But it's really kind of up to a community to decide what that best value is. And um, like I said, with the amount of work that goes into it, it is, and with small town budgets, you know, a few thousand dollars here and there um, sure helps. And so that commercial harvest is a, a solid connection in a lot of cases. I might add that another goal of the cycle that you just outlined, Natalie, is to raise community awareness also. Because uh, as Bailey mentioned before, communities have sort of lost touch with this ecological uh, happening of alewives needing to travel and return to ponds and why alewives are important. And so a lot of our focus is also on generally raising community awareness, either of kids, adults, all ages, of the importance of this fish and what they mean. Yeah. Um, if uh, folks who are listening um, have your own stories about alewives or questions for any of our speakers, I would invite you to call in. We'll open the lines up 
<clears throat> excuse me, for calls, um, you can call in at one 625 9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. And I have a feeling that um, we have some listeners who are volunteers in these watersheds that you're talking about. Um, so if you have a story of your own about why you volunteered or a, a question about alewives or about alewife restoration, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, I, I, we talked earlier about fishways. You guys have mentioned the word fishways. And I was wondering if you could describe what a fishway is. And, and Siona, you mentioned that restoring rivers uh, also involves some pretty heavy-duty engineering. So describe a little bit the physical aspects of fishways and how do you physically restore fish passage? Yeah, um, it does involve engineering. So there are different ways to restore passage. You usually have a blockage, sometimes a dam, um, and you essentially need to create a way for the fish to get beyond <clears throat> that blockage. Um, it can involve stream channel work to sort of uh, change the channel and allow, um, Bailey mentioned vertical drops as a sometimes an issue for a fish that can't jump. Um, there are also, so some people will remember in a few places um, what are called Alaskan steep pass um, type metal or wooden sort of ramps um, with different dividers in them that are a way to um, engineer fish passage around or alongside a dam. Um, the type that we've done so far have involved dam removal coupled with um, what's called pool and weir fishway construction. Um, and the reason for the careful engineering to create that kind of set of, I think there are five pools in each case, um, is to keep the water level of the pond the same or very similar to where it is when you start in spite of removing a dam at the base of it and allow fish to be able to go up and down at different water levels in the spring and the fall when they need to, thinking about what they need to be able to travel up and down um, so they need places to rest and they need jumps that they can do. And what we have done is engineer not just for alewife, actually, but for a broad spectrum of species that need to travel through these streams. So a pool and weir fishway, I'm sort of picturing, well, can you describe what that looks like? Yeah, I, I might describe it, and you guys can help me here. Uh, I might describe it as a set of shallow pools up a, up a um, ramp, um, that are lined usually by stones. You try and find local stone uh, to make it look a little more natural, sort of the way a, a rocky stream can look um, in, in a downhill section. Anything else you guys would add to that? Um, I would call it a, a rock wall and then a pool of water below the rock wall. And each rock wall is eight inches lower than the one above it. So it five rock walls, you get a 40-inch drop of roughly four feet, which is usually a low-head dam height or a lot of times the end of a pond, the, the beaver dam obstruction type of thing at a, at a pond. We, they're not big dams like they had on the Penobscot River. These are more for smaller um, rivers or brooks, streams. When I just add um, around this restoration and dam removal and, and fish passage, um, creation, I think, I just wanted to kind of toot Maine Coast Heritage's um, horn in that I think 
the piece that's really making this happen um, and the momentum behind it um, here is the fact that these fishways are being reconstructed based on, again, what the community's interests are. And so it's a lot of work on the front end to say, what do you guys want this to look like? A lot of places, you know, have dry hydrants perhaps to, for fire companies to access water or they just want to see it look like this or want to see it look like that. And dealing with landowners can be really challenging. And so getting that support ahead of these projects has been really a big reason for their success and Siona and Bailey's relationship really is a testament to that. And so um, you mentioned uh, giving the community some input on what they want it to look like. Um, can can folks go see these fishways? Can you, what's the access in terms of public access to be able to see this work? Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, the two that we've worked on so far were on land owned by the town of Penobscot, so I should, we haven't yet specifically mentioned, but the select boards of these towns, and particularly in the town of Penobscot, have been great in terms of supporting and helping this work happen. Um, the select board in Penobscot had to put a lot of time into um, and be a real player uh, at making these two fish passage projects happen, um, and they did. Um, particularly at Pierce Pond, there's a small town park and a boat ramp right next to the fishway. There's a viewing area and there's educational signage to sort of give a little um, information on alewives and the watershed as a whole. So definitely that one in particular is set up for people to go visit, see what's happening. Right now the run is happening. Um, it doesn't happen 24 hours a day. Um, but there are a couple runs a day, and uh, if you're lucky, you'll see the alewives climbing right up from the side of the parking lot at the Pierce Pond outlet. That's very cool. Uh, what's the what's the what road is that? Um, that's off the Mill Stream Road, right? Uh, locally known as the Dump Road. Okay, yeah. great. I remember a bunch of years ago, I took my then like four year old to see the alewife run in Soamsville, and she has not forgotten just that experience of being a little kid and seeing thousands of fish coming through. It blew her away. Yeah. Yeah, and I might mention we had a community celebration this past Saturday that was terrific. We had so many people coming from all over, including the Bucksport School, which we were so glad to have. Um, who came to see what an alewife looks like. We also had the hatchery there to show people what small salmon look like. We had a tank of salmon fry, and uh, we had smoked alewife for people to try to eat. So it was a fun community day. We have those once a year. Um, the town alewife committee spearheads those, and uh, they're another way to try and show people what this is about. Another great, great way to, to check them out is just by um, getting in on the volunteer efforts to count fish. So the way we count fish, there's, we do it in different, some different ways. Um, in some places, we'll set up kind of a fish weir to be able to count individual fish and really get a census of what's going in the pond. And in a lot of places, so at Pierce's and um, Walker's Pond, we split the day into four three-hour blocks and go out there and count for have a volunteer count for a half an hour each in each one of those blocks, and that's how we estimate the the fish passes for that year. And some, I mean, it's a it's a really exciting way to to check them out. Some of the afternoon counts where fish are really cruising in can be over um, one or two thousand fish in just a half an hour. So we're still looking for a few volunteers at um, at Pierce Pond. So um, look up uh, Bailey's or my organization um, if anyone's interested in that. I think there's a few morning slots open, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> 
So it sounds like if anyone wants to volunteer with you guys, they should get in touch with Mike Talhauser, who was just talking at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Yeah. Great. Um, one of you, I can't remember who, mentioned uh, smoked alewives. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to taste smoked alewives, and they are so good, bony and smoky. Um, so talk a little bit about sort of the, the heritage. How, how much did, you know, nobody talks about eating alewives anymore today, except occasionally at festivals people eat smoked alewives. Did people, did Mainers eat a lot of alewives in years yeah, past? Yeah, uh, at one time, alewives were a true staple. And this goes back to, you know, post-colonial time probably would be the, the big time when we didn't have refrigeration. And that's kind of part of my theory on what has killed uh, sea run fisheries, uh, Atlantic salmon, um, smelts would be another one, alewives. When, when, we, when we started out in the 1700s and had dams to make flour and material and sawmills, each dam was required by law to leave their flashboards open during the spawning run. And it was a pretty substantial fine for blocking off fish passage. But that all stopped once we got into refrigeration and these dams became hydropower stations because life was a lot easier with electricity and you didn't have to eat that bony, smoky alewife. You know, you could, you could keep your meat in the refrigerator a lot longer or chicken or anything or tastier fish. And I think that really has a lot to do with why we've, do, we've broken that chain between the marine fish being able to make it to the lake and do their thing in return. It's Unfortunately, hydropower dams are, are a big part of the issue, but it's, it's uh, <coughs> green energy, so it's hard to, you know, where do you balance fish over clean energy? It's a, it's a tough question. Well, in Maine's harvest, um, I think back in the 50s, it peaked, and it was somewhere around 50 million pounds of, of alewife that were harvested. Most of those did go to human consumption at that point. I think right now, because of a lot of the reasons that Bailey just listed, um, that's kind of changed. Well, it's changed a lot just because of all the dams and the fish passage issues. And so it was down somewhere around a million or so last year, maybe a little bit more than that. And it's starting to creep up. Um, but that capacity is, is, is really huge. And I think um, right now people are thinking of it more as a bait fishery, but it's you know worth pointing out that they, they still taste just as good, even if we've got refrigerators. And another portion of that is in the 50s, that, that is post-World War II. So a lot of these GIs are coming home from doing their service, and, you know, those guys were shot at. And do they want to eat an alewife, or do they want to take that dollar and take their girlfriend out for a burger and a shake at the, you know, at the, the local takeout? Um, the whole country changed after World War II in how we spent our money and our time. And I think that has a lot to do with why some of these traditional fisheries kind of petered out. Yeah, that's really interesting to to think about the larger historical context of that. Um, and so uh, you had your your alewife celebration day. Was it last Saturday? Um, and and I think you mentioned that the Downey Salmon Federation came with their their mobile smokehouse. So people and they brought smoked alewives, so people had the opportunity to taste them and sort of help reconnect um, with that with that heritage. Um, 
So we just had a call. Um, James uh, asked a question. Um, he asked you guys today, what's the relationship between beaver between beavers and alewives? We've talked a little bit about that relationship, um, but would love to hear a little bit more. So I'll maybe I'll take a first crack at it. And so just a real quick funny anecdote on beavers. So I Great. so I help the you know three towns. I facilitate some of their meetings and. And started that about three and a half years ago or so and learned pretty quickly that if you're going to put together an agenda for an alewife meeting, beavers should be on there and they should be the last item because when beavers come up, that's all you talk about for the rest of the meeting when it has to do with alewives. But I'd say in reality, you know, they're a real issue. Um, we don't have nearly the, the amount of predators that we used to that um, that would eat beavers, you know, that we historically did. People don't trap them. Um, the prices are down on pelts. The institutional knowledge just around how you do trap a beaver um, is kind of gone from most people's minds. And um, and so, and they can, the fact is, they can dam up um, rivers, and it takes a lot of work to, to do that. And so, because of the fact that we've got, you know, probably more beavers, and they're a little bit more, better chance to be successful than in the past, um, makes it an issue. And the fact that we don't have alewives in all of the systems that we used to um, is a real piece of that, too. Because if we had alewives in every pond that could support them, it probably wouldn't matter if, if one pond was, you know, kind of extirpated for a little while. Because while they do come back to the same place, a few fish, you know, stray, they call it 5 or 10% or so, will go to different systems. And so, you know, eventually there'd be a really big water event and a beaver dam would get flushed out and other runs would colonize that, recolonize that again. And so um, right now it's a bigger issue just because we have fewer alewives in our ponds and streams. We've got more beavers and um, and they're pretty neat to watch. I mean, as someone that's taken out a few beaver dams, it's you're pretty frustrated and amazed at the same time when you're you're doing this work, and so it is one of those. Um, there's a a lot on both sides when it comes to beaver. And maybe it's worth talking about how you know some of the work that you and the volunteers are doing is involves helping them live together. So what you do is notch those dams. You don't take them out. You keep the beavers there often and allow the dams to continue to be there and that habitat change that they create to continue and yet also allow the fish to pass. That involves a lot of volunteer hours every year, um, but that's the way you're trying to deal with the change that has created all these beavers along the alewife runs. Yeah, there's a whole lot of different ways to do it. In some places, you know, it's so remote that you can't get to, and so trapping is the option in a lot of, you know, issues, and there's there's landowner interactions too. It's best to just, you know, let the beaver do their thing and notch it, and it's, yeah, it's kind of whatever the, the situation involves. But they've obviously coexisted for a long time, and so there is, uh, you know, solutions that can, can do all these things. Great. Thanks so much for your call and your question, James. Um, Sounds like it's one that comes up a lot. Uh, If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. And today we're talking about alewives and specifically alewives in the Bagaduce River area, um, not very far from the station here. And in the studio with us today, you're hearing from Siona Ulbrich, who is with Maine Coast Heritage Trust, Mike Talhauser from Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries out of Stonington, and Bailey Bowden from the town of Penobscot and co-founder of the Bagaduce River Alewife Committee. Um, 
So uh, we've we've mentioned that alewives are sometimes used as bait. Um, oh, and I also wanted to just remind listeners, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to call at 1-866-625-9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. So bait. <laughs> uh, we've mentioned bait and that alewives are sometimes used as bait um, by lobstermen and um uh, would love to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, presumably the bait is coming out of rivers that have gone through the whole process to be able to r- remain open to commercial fishing. Um, and I know that in many communities, the commercial harvesters themselves are really involved in the restoration projects um, to bring alewives back. Um, so can you guys sort of share a little bit about how that works? Well, there's a bunch of different ways. The The town is given the authority by the state to have a commercial fishery. So the town can either use their equipment and their employees to do the harvest, which I'm pretty sure they do in Warren, I think on that river system, or it can be subcontracted out to a private individual, which they do in Orland. And when it goes to a private individual, there's a a contract that's signed and a percentage of the gross goes to the town. So it's, it is a way for the town to make a few dollars off their run, depending on the size of the run. And it's, you know, right now is a pretty important time to be talking about bait. I mean, we yeah. could do three shows on just the, the bait shortage that we're seeing right now and the, the cuts in the Atlantic herring fishery. Um, so we won't get into it too much. But, you know, like you said earlier, they are a herring species. And so most people, I mean, most fishermen could, but most normal, normal, normal folks wouldn't be able to look at a river herring or an alewife and an Atlantic herring and be able to tell much of a difference. And they fish pretty close to the, the same way. And they're also, a, um, because of the timing that they're coming back and because of the sort of rebounding of, of um, the halibut fishery and folks participating in that, they make great halibut bait on long lines. And so um, they're coming right back, back right now, and the season's going on right now for halibut. And so they're really a preferred bait for that um, fishery as well. And... Uh- I know you guys are alewife experts, so you might not know the answer to this, but do you have a sense of how much alewife bait is used in commercial fishing? That might be a question for the commercial fishermen, how much they're using alewives versus other stuff. Yeah, I don't have an exact number. Um, uh, one of the the folks that we have a joint position um, with, uh, Josh Stoll at the, with the University of Maine, and he's working on some, some of those questions around the the bait fishery, the shortage that we're experiencing this year, and how those are going to interact with each other. But um, it's pretty limited right now with the number of commercial runs that are actually online is pretty small. And even once we, you know, once we're successful at all this and things really happen, it's going to be building capacity around processing of these to find places to freeze fish or salt fish so that they're not just available while the run's going. And so that can be extended throughout the year when we experience these shortages of bait. And I might add, you know, we're talking about bait, um, but this alewives and other fish are so important to reestablishing a ground fishery off of Maine. Uh, so keeping them alive, it's not a bad thing either because they'll go out there and be food, part of the food chain. Um, and so important to bringing back the ground fishery that we all would like to see come back to this area, used to be so important, uh, is having those forage fish with alewife being a key one. And any other fish species, really. I mean, I think we're in the Bagadoos, I think we're definitely seeing, you know, a return in, in bigger numbers of striped bass coming up. And as 
climate changes and things move around and new species come up, um, they're going to be food for whatever's out there. I'm glad that you brought that up because that was that was a question I wanted to ask you guys too, is to 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 help us make the connection between all of these uh, very localized, very community-based efforts to restore effort, restore alewives like you guys have been up to in the Bagaduce and so many other towns up and down the coast and how that connects to sort of the larger initiatives to restore fisheries in the Gulf of Maine. Um, so I think I'll take my first shot at it. One of the, the things that I think is important with the Bagaduce is this is really creating a model for how towns that are really wanted to see this happen, how they do the work to bring back their fisheries, work with land trusts or a science organization or, or whoever it is, a governmental organization, and try to, to move that forward. Some of it's creating those policies. We talked about it, at, um, giving a town an opportunity to harvest before 10 years of data is collected. And I think it's creating partnerships. The fact that you know we're all sitting in the same room, a land trust, a science organization, town government and the all the other you know tnc and noahs and and other organizations that are working in this field is getting a lot more done you know together than we would um separately and i'll just take one second to to point out one of those connections the um there's a, a group of organizations called the Downey's fisheries partnership um siona's organization is part of that mine is um, washington washington county council of governments and the sunrise county for economic Sunrise County Economic Council. That's what it is, yes. Um, and, and a whole lot of other organizations that are in all these different places, whether it's a, you know, a governmental organization or a science or nonprofit or a, whatever it is, it takes all these angles that we're hitting at you know, from to make it a, a statewide effort that's going to make this happen in, in bigger places than, than the Bagadoos. Yeah, and I'd like to actually thank the Down East Fisheries Partnership and uh, the Downey Salmon Federation in particular, that's where I got started. I just happened to run a court across Dwayne Shaw. He was referred to me. you got to talk to this guy. And, and, and he's uh, the director of the Downey Salmon Federation. Yes, and Dwayne said, great timing. We're having this meeting on Elwives in Cherryfield, I think it was, in 2015. Please attend. And I went in having only worked with DMR and not knowing anyone else in the state was interested in sea run fish and found a whole room full of nonprofits that were interested in this work. So that's how everything started for me. That's I was introduced to a lot of people at that meeting. That's great. So that gave you us information about how to get started in your local community. Right. And actually they came to me. What can we do to help you? Because this seems like a good idea. Uh-huh. And that was actually mainly, well, Penobscot East Resource Center back in those days, and Siona with Maine Coast Heritage and uh, Blue Hill Heritage Trust all kind of got together and brainstormed what can we do on the Bagaduce River right now to get this started. And then we started talking a bigger picture, and the plan just grew and grew. And I don't know if we're done yet or not. <laughs> on the planning part, anyway. <laughs> so, Siona, what are the plans for this summer? So right now is the alewife run, so there's all kinds of monitoring happening. What's what's coming forward? What's coming Yeah, coming we have a lot in the works. Um, so I talked about engineering being an important component of fishways, um, and uh, we have two engineers working on the engineering for the next couple projects. 
uh, actually three engineers, on, three different engineers for the three different projects that are coming, I should say. Um, there are two stages of engineering that you contract out, um, an initial and then a final design. We're now on the final design engineering stage for the three projects underway. Um, and once we get that initial uh, set of plans from the engineers, we're going to be starting the community process of showing people um, what the engineer thinks might work here, what the options are, listening to some of the aspects that people like or don't like or have questions about, uh, and start um, helping to grow the understanding and learn from people on what should happen at each place. So that'll probably be maybe fall of this year. This all takes some time, but the engineers are all out there doing a lot of work these days on the ponds. Wow. Um, so uh, final question for all of you. Um, would love to hear from each of you just a short little thought about what's your hope for the Bagadoos in the coming years and, and this project. Let's go well, with Bailey. Going. I'm hoping we'll be able to get all five runs reestablished. And right now we're producing somewhere around 400,000, 450,000 Elwive adults returning annually and i'd like to see that number in a million that's wow my goal that's great that's just boggles the mind that many fish coming up our little tiny streams so between the five streams you'd like to see a million fish come right back. and walker's pond did what three hundred and forty thousand last year but it's a 700 acre lake and the other ponds are all around 100 acres or less so it's, it's going to be a challenge, but I think we can do it. With good access, the fish will come. Cool. Build it and they will come, right? That's <laughs> right. my hope. Restore it and they will come. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and to me, it's, it's kind of already happening, I think, is, it, is that these towns are really owning, you know, this piece of, of management that they're allowed to do and, and to be able to really um, deeply ingrain that in just how their community works and how they um, do everything else from, you know, as simple as running your schools, it, this, this really becomes just part of how these communities operate, and I think that's that's already happening, and that's why we're seeing, you know, why we're going to see a million fish. And I'm surprised Bailey didn't say billions because, you know, and he's he always does. He's like, this isn't millions of fish, this is billions of fish, and statewide it really is, and it's because it's not just adults; it's thousands of eggs and juveniles coming out of each one of these fish, and so um, that's the the big goal is the billions. And you mentioned uh, kids. Do you have kids who are now involved in the volunteering? I know that you had a school bus full of kids come to your celebration, so they're getting connected. Yeah, we had the all the whole Bucksport group there. Siona and I did a bunch of fish prints in the Sedgwick School, and we work at the Skippers program at Main Center. And, um, yep, they're a big part of it. And Siona, how about your final thought? Um, yeah, I totally support what they were saying, and I'm also excited about the communities learning more. We've had such good town government support and involvement around the whole watershed. So uh, the bigger picture of people caring, people being involved, and the private landowners we've had to work with, who are many, have been key to this coming ahead. So Great. really that community awareness. Thank you. Great. Great. 
Uh, thanks. We've come to the end of Coastal Conversations today about restoring the Bagaduce River watershed. Thanks so much to Bailey Bowden of the Bagaduce River Alewife Committee, Mike Talhauser from Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, and Siona Ulbrich from Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering the program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners 